Well, on that note, let's bring in our next guest, Carlos Martinez, who is the co-founder of No Cold War of the No Cold War campaign. Excuse me. Also runs the Invent the Future blog. Carlos, thank you so much for joining us again here on the Freedom Side. Great to see you, Eugene. Great to see you, Rania. Well, before we get into it, and, and as you undoubtedly heard, Carlos, uh, there was quite a bit of discussion in the United States that seemed a little unreality. But I want to just, for people who maybe miss it, play a quick clip here of both President Biden and President Putin discussing sort of generally how they felt things went and what are some of the things they're working on. Anytime now. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I can't see it. I don't have a TV, so I can't. Uh, I can tell you what they said. I mean, I can't. It will. Not. The clip will come up. The clip will come up. Well, we let me just let me just push forward, Carlos, and ask you the first question because I think that's that's what's relevant here. You know, the gist of what took place yesterday is, despite all of the effluvia on both sides, you know, both the United States and Russia agreed to cooperate around the issue of strategic stability, to reopen nuclear talks, to return. Uh, ambassadors to both sides. I mean, are you looking at this as potentially a hopeful moment, maybe a step back by the United States from some of the more aggressive Cold War style moves that we've seen over the past few presidencies? Uh, yeah, well, look, it seems that the meeting was basically at the very least friendly and polite and that both sides made kind of appropriately diplomatic noises. It's positive that they met and from a pro-peace and an anti-war point of view, of course, we should welcome any attempts at de-escalation. And of course, if ambassadors can be restored, if pro progress can be made in relation to arms control, in relation to disarmament, then that's all to the good. And I think the whole thing represents a little symbolic victory for Russia in the sense that the US, in spite of its enormous and its enduring frustration at its failure to bring Russia into its orbit, you know, the aim was to establish Russia in a stable, subservient role within the US-led imperialist world. Um, and it hasn't worked out like that. But the US nevertheless recognizes that it has to deal with Russia as a sovereign nation with its own interests, with its own development strategy. And it's also perhaps another manifestation of the US's hope to divide Russia and China. Um, and Russia-China relations is something that maybe we're going to talk about a bit later. But you know, looking at the reports and looking at the transcripts and looking at the media coverage, you're left with a slightly bitter taste, I have to say. You know, the, the US insists on drawing this relationship in terms of human rights, continues to display such a stunning hypocrisy and lack of self-awareness. You know, Biden said, for example, that um, there would be devastating consequences for Russia if Alexei Navalny were to die in prison. Now, does the US not have political prisoners? Did Chip Fitzgerald not die in prison a few weeks ago after 52 years behind bars on trumped-up charges, the result of his being a member of the Black Panther Party? Is Mumia Abu-Jamal not in prison? Is Leonard Peltier not in prison? What about Julian Assange? You know, why doesn't Putin threaten devastating consequences about all of that? He would be well within his rights. So this kind of never-ending hypocrisy and the dynamics of imperialism and American exceptionalism just remain so firmly in place. And, you know, I think we're, we're at a place where this basic framework of Russophobia, of anti-Russian sentiment in US politics, is, it's become very stable. It's become pretty constant. It's become predictable and, it, and it's bipartisan. And in fact, if anything, it's 
more prevalent in the Democratic Party, right? This idea that Russia is to blame for the US's problems. I was reading uh, just, I think this morning, Matthew Masterson, who's a former senior advisor at the Department of Homeland Security. He said that Russia is engaged in hybrid warfare against the US. You know, he said that Russia is looking for ways to cast doubt and to divide us along racial lines. So mm-hmm. apparently Russia is responsible for racism in the US. Mm. And, and the fairly strong hint there is that the anti-racist and the black liberation movements kind of acting as useful idiots for evil authoritarian Russia. And, and you know, there's, there's, it's a bit of an aside, but there's a very interesting um, and profound historical connection there. Because if you look at the original Cold Warriors, Back in the 1950s and 60s, the the real fanatical anti-communist, the Better Red Than Dead Brigade, they were essentially part of the Southern plantocracy, you know, and anti-communism went hand in hand with this vicious, relentless crackdown against the early civil rights movement. And you look at the history of the US government treatment of the black left, Paul Robeson, for example, WB, for example, you really see how deeply connected these ideas were. And it's fascinating to see that kind of parallel reemerge now, 60 to 70 years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is like watching history play out again over and over again. I mean, watched it happen over the Trump years. Obviously, you know, Trump not being president anymore hasn't made this Russia hysteria go away. It's just even deeper among liberals now. And now, you know, the right wingers can go back to playing right into it because they kind of took a little bit of a break during the Trump years because they were being attacked with the whole Russiagate smear. Um, Real quick, I mean, you mentioned all this hypocrisy. Uh, Somebody in this uh, gave us a super chat donation. Uh, Mr. 13 FNG made a really good point. Uh, And just to remind those who are watching, if you throw in money in the super chat, we'll give you a shout out, read your comment. Uh, out loud as long as it's like appropriate. But I think this comment is very relevant to what we're talking about. This person says, William Bloom's book, Killing Hope, U.S. Military and CIA Intervention Since World War II, documents U.S. influencing the elections of over 72 countries. And at this point, 72 countries might actually be an underestimate. Um, but all of this, all of what the, these these people in the media and these U.S. officials are saying about Russia is such comical projection because this is literally what America does. I mean, I'm in Lebanon right now in a country that's been the victim and continues to be the victim of the U.S. funding right-wing and fascist elements uh, to, you know, to attack both the left or any resistance movement that arises against American imperialism or to challenge Israel. Um, so, you know, I'm in a place that experiences that. I'm right next door to Syria where America backed and funded and armed these jihadist death squads to try to collapse the state. Um, And all across Latin America, America, the U.S. has backed right-wing death squads. And right now, the U.S. is backing these fanatical right-wing militias in Ukraine against Russia. I mean, it's just, you know, it's amazing. And then, Carlos, you know, with all that said, I do want to turn also to the issue of China because This week wasn't just this meeting between Putin and Joe Biden. It was also the NATO summit. And so, um, and so, oh, oh, I'm sorry, not the NATO summit, the G7 met, and then also the NATO. There's two things that happened. And so all these countries meeting for NATO, the talk was China. Like they're really trying to redirect NATO from 
not redirect, but include China as a target of NATO. So it's not just Russia anymore. The U.S. is really trying to turn NATO into a weapon against China. So can you talk a little bit about uh, how you perceived this meeting to go? Sure. I mean, what I thought was really interesting and ironic and funny about the NATO summit is that everybody was falling over themselves to say that they definitely don't want a new Cold War. But then everything they said subsequent to that and the statement, the communique coming out of the meeting, and obviously everything that they're doing in the world indicates all too clearly that they're pursuing precisely a new Cold War. Um, Biden said uh, a funny thing at the NATO summit that Russia and China were seeking to drive a wedge into transatlantic solidarity. And, you know, a lot of people are asking, what does that mean? What is this transatlantic solidarity? You know, is it the coordination between the US and Western Europe that imposed a debt crisis on Africa, that supported the apartheid regimes in South Africa, Zimbabwe, Namibia, Mozambique, um, that supported the Contra war against the people of Nicaragua, that supported the coup against Chavez in Venezuela in 2002, that supported the Pinochet coup in 1973 that stood uh, you know, behind the brutal military regimes in Indonesia, in Brazil, in Argentina, that's been waging these genocidal wars against Korea, Vietnam, uh, Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria. I mean, I think we can only reasonably conclude that so-called transatlantic solidarity is just a, a code word and alias for imperialism and white supremacy. And if Russia and China are disrupting that, well, that's fantastic. I'm very glad. I'm very glad to hear that. <laughs> right. And I mean, that's it is interesting, though, you mentioned how there were these countries or leaders falling all over themselves to say, no, 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 this isn't a Cold War. And of course, right, their actions uh, suggested the opposite. But I do think there is something to be said. Maybe I'm reading too much into it about some European countries being a, a bit hesitant to go as far as the U.S. when it comes to trying to um, ignite this Cold War with China or ramp it up. You know, I was it was interesting to see Angela Merkel, for example, you know, explicitly say uh, or kind of tone down the rhetoric against China. And I think France tried to do that as well. What do you make of that? The fact that there it does seem to be a slight hesitation by some European countries to go along 100% with this American war on China. Yeah, I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Um, you're looking beneath the surface of what happened at the G7 and NATO. It's neither conference was was particularly successful in terms of getting Europe on board with this more hawkish approach to China or Russia. You know, Biden's whole foreign policy is predicated on building an alliance, right? That includes the US, that includes Britain, Europe, Japan. India, Canada, Australia, against China in particular. And, you know, the situation in each country is different. But what we saw at the G7 and what we saw at NATO is that, okay, Britain is, which is where I live and am based, um, you know, Britain's totally happy, happy to go along with whatever the US wants. Um, but the U EU continues to have its own separate interests and at least some level of foreign policy independence. You know, the EU is China's largest trading partner. And China is its largest trading partner. It would be economic suicide for the EU to position itself unambiguously within the US-led new Cold War attack on China. 
German trade with China last year accounted for around quarter of a trillion dollars. You know, the, when we talk about these massive numbers, it's difficult to get a sense of the scale. But quarter of a trillion dollars is a lot of money. I think the global annual GDP is about $72 trillion. So a quarter of $1 trillion is a lot. Um, so Europe needs to work with China for the sake of its own basic economic interests. So uh, if that means that Biden is, is looking like he's probably not going to be as successful as he wants to be in terms of creating this you know, alliance of so-called democracies, a G7 plus three, you know, the, the, the G10 they've been talking about, a democratic alliance, or getting the quad together um, in, in terms of waging this campaign of China containment and encirclement. Yeah, just to remind our uh, our viewers, we are speaking to Carlos Martinez, co-founder co-founder of the No Cold War campaign, among other <laughs> campaigns you work on, a very noble cause. And on the issue of China, um, you know, I think it's also interesting that Biden and these NATO G seven countries are trying to come uh, are trying to combat. China's Belt and Road Initiative, or at least in rhetoric, they are saying that they're going to put all this money into financing the building of infrastructure in developing countries. Um, I think this is a pipe dream. Uh, I really don't see these capitalist countries led by America. I don't even see their systems allowing that sort of uh, level of investment to take place in their own countries, <laughs> let alone in the <laughs> developing world. I mean, would you agree with that? What do you make of this attempt to try to challenge the Belt and Road Initiative? Is it just words or could it actually be something? I'd love to see America try and build infrastructure in the third world it spends so much time destroying, but I, I don't believe that's possible. Um, yeah, it's a, it's not the first time they've tried to build an alternative to the Belt and Road. You know, this is a discussion that we've had before. I don't know if you remember the Blue Dot Network which was supposed to be no. <laughs> a high-quality infrastructure alliance led by so-called democratic countries. And it's gone precisely nowhere. And this new project will go precisely nowhere. China's just really well-placed to do what it's doing with the Belt and Road. It can deploy extraordinary quantities of capital. It's got existing investments across Central Asia, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, Africa, Latin America, it's the largest trading partner of the vast majority of countries of the global south. And because of the Chinese state's domination of the banking system, then project financing is relatively much easier to organize and to align with policy goals, for example, around environmental targets. And the Belt and Road is already in motion. It's, it's been in motion for several years. If you look at the China-Pakistan economic corridor, for example, its current like project value is around $60 billion dollars. Belt and Road cooperation agreements have already been signed with 80% of African countries. The idea that the, the US and the EU could compete with that is kind of farcical. And if you'll if you'll pardon the Mao reference, they're really they're picking up a rock to drop it on their own feet. Um, because actually American and European countries uh, and companies could benefit from the Belt and Road. They could be bidding for contracts. And actually, lots of them do have considerable expertise and advanced technology in certain areas. They should be joining in with a process of global integration, something they claim to support that's benefiting countries of the developing world, that's moving the world forward in terms of the battle against poverty and hunger. But instead, they're rallying against that um, in just a farcical and 
hilariously ineffective way. You know, a really funny example I'm sure you saw of this lack of capacity in the West is what happened earlier this week in Trinidad, where the US embassy yeah. this big announcement that it was donating, I think it was 80 vials of the COVID vaccine, which corresponds to like a few hundred doses for a population of 1.3 million people. And several commentators noted that China was donating on the very same day 200,000 doses, right? So if you, you know, you can say what you want, you can make these big statements about all the things you're going to do to counter China and try and make yourself look good or try and make yourself look slightly less bad in relation to China. But when it comes down to the reality, who's delivering? China's delivering. Russia's delivering. The US is not delivering. The EU is not delivering. I mean, you're making such an important point. I was thinking about this the other day. Someone sent me an article that was critiquing China's outreach vis-a-vis COVID-19 vaccines, saying that, well, they're saying that they're doing a lot, but they've only done more than everyone else, basically, which I I didn't even understand the argument. It was basically just like, well, they're doing a lot, but it could be more. And Africa still doesn't have enough vaccines and it's China's fault. And I thought, well, one interesting thing about this is China is the only country so far that has built a massive cold storage facility for vaccines in Ethiopia that has acted as a massive air bridge, I guess you could call it, into the African continent for all of these vaccines that they've donated and sold, in addition to not only building the headquarters of the African CDC, but having broken ground this year, I think, on five other regional headquarters. So by any measure... Obviously, China is the better public health collaborator with Africa, at least as it concerns COVID-19. And I would say consistently, given the sort of yo-yo effect of the U.S. aid here on the basis of a woman's right to choose. But I mean, it really does feel that there's a willful ignorance, especially as it concerns COVID-19, Carlos, to acknowledge that it's not some malign you know, force out here that is allowing China to succeed in cutting deals and and doing business with other countries in the world. It's that they're actually delivering in terms of the development gains of many of these nations in Africa, certainly, but around the the world. Yeah, I mean, you always get a sense of of projection, right, from the Western media when they talk about China's, when they talk about vaccine diplomacy, the idea that you couldn't do anything Uh, altruistic or positive for the world without having some hidden agenda. And well, actually, in Britain, in the US, that that is basically how we think. So we we project that onto China, right? But actually, how important is it to look at the motivation? I remember um, back in probably 2012, um, there was an election campaign in Venezuela, and the British media was railing against Chavez because he was trying to curry favor with the voters by supplying people, but by supplying poor people with free social housing. And they're saying how terrible this is. Well, you know, I've got a terrible government here. I wish they'd give me free housing, you know. So what what has China actually done? China has already provided um, 400 million vaccine doses, the vast majority of them to countries of the developing world of the global south that don't have other options for vaccines, right? Um, That compares with a few million from the US. They've just had the the Sinopharm and the Sinovac vaccines approved for emergency use by the WHO. Between the two of those companies, they estimate that they can produce 5 billion doses this year. 
uh, most of which are going to get distributed around the world. So there's no country that gets anywhere near what China's doing in terms of supplying vaccines, either free or very cheap, you know, very affordable to other countries. Russia actually is, has, is, has been playing a really good role with its Sputnik vaccine as well. But China is way out there in the lead. It's also developing production arrangements with other countries. It's developing production facilities in Egypt and other countries so that they can produce the vaccines themselves. Both of those two key vaccines, unlike the Moderna, unlike the Pfizer vaccine, are not mRNA vaccines. They don't need to be stored at minus 70 degrees centigrade. They don't need liquid nitrogen for their storage. So they're, they're perfect for use in countries that don't have the, this enormous uh, health and technology infrastructure. Um, so, you know, they're 100% they're leading the way on that. And, you know, we, they should be setting an, an example for us. We should be saying, yeah, you're doing an excellent job and we will try to catch up with you. You know, that, that's what the situation demands. We're in a pandemic. We're in a very serious situation that's threatening the lives of millions and millions of people across the planet. We shouldn't be playing politics. We shouldn't be point scoring. We shouldn't be backstabbing. We should be coordinating at a global level. That's what China's asking for. And that's what we should be demanding of our governments in the West. You know, I wonder, you know, we've seen the G7 meeting, we've seen the NATO meeting. There's all these contradictions inherent in both of them. I mean, at what point, Carlos, do these so-called multilateral institutions start to become more anachronistic. I mean, we've already seen, you know, obviously China was spearheaded the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. We certainly saw what happened with the uh, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership versus the uh, TPP. I mean, in, in addition to just sort of the individual countries, it feels like the center of gravity in terms of multilateral collaboration is starting to shift away from these quote unquote traditional, let's say post-World War II, US led to a lesser degree Western led forums, just in terms of relevance to the issues of the day, at least in terms of actionable items. Yeah, it's uh, funny you should say that. Uh, Jeffrey Sachs released an article this morning, basically saying that the G7 should be wound up. You know, it's time to kill the G7. Um, it's not a relevant organization anymore. Uh, he, he said that G7 members like making symbolic statements but not solving actual problems. They no longer even represent the bulk of global economic output, right? It's it's just a club of rich imperialist countries with really nothing meaningfully useful to offer the world. And, and I 100% agree it should be shut down. And we've got much more appropriate forums for dealing with the global problems that we definitely face, that we definitely need, you know, as as a species, as humanity, we 100% need to coordinate around pandemics, around climate change, around war, around poverty, around education. You know, I, I totally stand for multilateralism and global cooperation, but G7 is not a useful forum for that anymore. Um, you know, obviously we have the UN General Assembly, obviously we have the G20, the African Union, as you've said, RCEP, ASEAN, ALBA, CELAC in Latin America. So you know, there is this gradual shift towards a multilateral order, but it's, you know, it's going to take a long time. And, and really, I think, looking at it, this, this shift towards multi, uh, multipolarity, it's the key driver of the no Cold War, of the new Cold War, sorry. You know, um, because the US and its allies they feel the, the legitimacy of their ideological, of their economic and their political system 
suffering, you know, it was riding high in the 80s, it was riding high in the 90s with the decline and the fall of the Soviet Union. And now it's taken this series of blows, which could turn out to be fatal. We were supposed to enjoy a peace dividend after the Cold War. There were no more major enemies. And yet suddenly we're launching genocidal wars against Yugoslavia, against Afghanistan, against Iraq, against Libya. Wait, does this mean capitalism has an inherent tendency towards war and destruction? Hmm. Then we had the financial crash, which they desperately tried to explain away, saying it was due to an obscure technicality or some bad actors, and they could just fix it by cutting down on consolidated debt obligations and these various you know, complicated financial instruments. But in reality, it was connected to the declining rate of profit. It was connected to the financialization of the economy, the inevitability of bursting asset bubbles and so on. And these, these things are core to the system. They're not anomalies. You can find them in a, in a standard Marxist analysis of capitalist crises. Then you know, now in the West, we face declining living standards, the horrifying failure of the major Western countries to contain COVID, a deepening environmental crisis, ongoing oppression of minority communities. So the basic assumptions of our society are increasingly being questioned. There, and there are some very important signs of a rising resistance to that, most importantly, I think, with uh, the wave of Black Lives Matter protests. And how does the state, how does the superstructure respond to that with repression and with deflection? And this whole thing of blaming Russia or blaming China for everything is quintessential deflection. But, you know, this inevitable shift towards multipolarity is really driving a crisis within the imperialist heartlands. And that's behind th this new Cold War. And, and, and I think we're in a period which is going to be very fragile and in many ways very dangerous. I, I think that's a very, very important point. And I think the I mean, there's so many connections here to make. I, this is maybe kind of out of the blue. But as you were talking, I was thinking about this, Carlos. Um, maybe people have not seen this around and who are watching this. But Kenneth Kaunda, who is the former leader of Zambia, really a giant in the African liberation struggle past today. And I was thinking about this in the context of the non-aligned movement, Carlos, and the role that the Soviet Union played in opening up just a, a panoply of, of different views and different approaches to how to develop countries in many different places and in many different ways. And it feels like the rise of China has done something similar, particularly in Latin America, where we have seen this you know, consistent in some ways in terms of the broad thrust, but also very diverse flowering of movements gaining control of state power and saying, listen, we can actually organize the world in a totally different way. And I mean, that seems like an important piece of this moment um, as well between, you know, not just maybe the two major big powers, the countries we see and think about, um, but what's sort of emerging in the different nooks and crannies that have been opened by this struggle around the issue of, of, of a multipolar world. Yeah, uh, well, firstly, you know, thank you for mentioning Kenneth Kaunda, a uh, very important figure. Uh, you know, may he rest in power. Obviously, you know, one of the key leaders of the independent struggle against British colonialism in northern Rhodesia and the first president of, of Zambia, and also a, a, a key figure in the non-aligned movement, a key figure in anti-imperialist circles generally, a great friend of China. And China, of course, had, had supported that independent struggle and historically uh, essentially funded and built the Tazara Railway, um, the railway between uh, Dar es Salaam and, and Zambia, 
which was used to bypass the apartheid-controlled states and you know, enable some, you know, if you like, uh, an economic multipolarity within Africa. Um, so, you know, very, very fitting to mention him. But yeah, I think China, it, yeah, it plays a very positive role in international diplomacy, increasingly so. Um, obviously, it supports multipolarity. It takes on the demands and and the basic stances of the developing countries at the international level. It opposes war very consistently. It opposes sanctions very consistently. It promotes a very clear policy of non-interference. Um, obviously, it's working hard on combating climate change, and it's providing crucial investment and is trading with countries around the world and is doing that in a way that stands in such stark contrast to the way the imperialist countries and the way the Bretton Woods institutions deal with and have dealt with the countries of the developing world in terms of extortionate interest rates, loan conditionality, enforced privatization, and so on. And yeah, as a result of all of that, China's influence is rising and what it offers to, is, is very attractive to most countries, particularly countries of the global south. Um, but obviously, the US and its allies want to maintain the long-term viability of their imperialist world system, which is by definition the opposite of a multilateral, multipolar world order. You know, just being a, you know living in the Middle East, you can see the difference so clearly. And I think this is what a lot of people in developing countries see when they look at China versus the US and how they deal with their countries. The US uh, like you mentioned, these imperialist countries and their sort of extortionist interest policies, all this debt. Um, the U.S. and its allies impose these policies of um, basically like you have, they impose, they, they impose a system on you. Like if you want us to help you anything, if you want us to give you debt relief, you have to institute these neoliberal austerity policies that are really going to hurt your population and decay your country and lead to all kinds of corruption and just, you know, leave your people in complete destitution. Whereas, or, or the U.S. is bombing your country if you try to resist that, or the U.S. is starving your country with sanctions if you try to resist that. Um, whereas China isn't doing any of those negative things, plus actually tries to make these partnerships where they build things, whether it's ports or, you know, power stations or just basic infrastructure that a lot of developing countries are lacking. So, you know, it's interesting to see the U.S. try so hard to project this image of China's evil ways, but I don't actually think that it works in the developing world where people have a real tangible, uh, you know, tangible policies they can look at that affect their daily lives. Like China just built a port and then America's like denying us funding for something or like is putting our officials under sanction. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and, you know, China is, you know, as China is emerging as a, a technology and science powerhouse and it's sending rockets to Mars and it's taking pictures of the dark side of the moon, it's innovating on 5G, on AI, it's innovating on clean energy, on nanotechnology and whatnot. Um, it's also sharing those technological advances and cooperating with other countries. It's launching satellites for Bolivia. It's launching satellites for Ethiopia. China and Cuba have opened a joint biotechnology research center in Hunan, and the two countries are working together on a universal coronavirus vaccine. Um, compare that with 
the way you know, the West or the imperialist world has engaged with the developing world over the years. You know, they have deliberately and systematically cut those countries off from science. They've deliberately and systematically cut those countries off from technology and from education. You know, the way China looks at it is this is how we've developed. This is what we've done. We think we've got a formula that works pretty well. And we're super happy if countries in Africa and countries in Latin America can take that on and we're completely willing to help them. Um, you know, and, and that's going to create a more balanced, uh, a more prosperous and a more democratic world and which for safe uh, for china in terms of its self-interest is also a safer world because uh, a world that's dominated by the us a world that's dominated by imperialism a hegemonist world is a dangerous place for china to be you know any any socialist country in history can tell you that existing in a world dominated by imperialism and us imperialism is really tough you know to to be forced to build what Michael Parenti described as seed socialism. It's a tough situation. Much better if there's some balance in the world, if you've got a multipolar world, if you, you know, if it's not dominated by a single power that militarily, economically, diplomatically, culturally, ideologically is able to exert so much influence and so much power. I'd actually like to ask you one quick question, Carlos. I think it's important because um, it's a it's it's a claim I see a lot among people who don't either know what imperialism means, or maybe they're confused. Um, how do you respond to this claim? Because sometimes you see it among, I think, progressives in the in the West, this claim that China is an imperialist country. Mm. Um, they talk about Chinese imperial, like China's just like America. It's an imperialist country. Uh, I mean, you just kind of explained China's role in the developing world. It doesn't sound like imperialism, but how do you respond to that common, I think, common claim among some progressive circles? Yeah, I mean, you had an interesting chat with Prabhat Patnaik about this, um, and, he, and he made <laughs> some, you know, far more profound points than I ever could. But, uh, you know, if China is imperialist, then frankly, the word imperialism has lost all meaning, you know. It, there's imperialism, you know, uh, it means empirism. You know, there's, 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 you can't have, imperialism doesn't just mean trading. It doesn't just mean foreign investment, right? Imperialism means domination, okay? If, if you look at the way the European powers and the United States and Japan have treated the, the countries within their sphere of influence, they've played a role of domination. You know, the U.S. has got 800 military bases around the world, and it uses them for its own purposes, right? To you know, it it structures international relations to its own benefit, economic and political and ideological benefit. China has one military foreign military base. China has not gone to war for more than 40 years. China is opposed to sanctions. China is not engaged in interference with any other country's elections. It's not involved in bribing politicians. It's not in, involved in subverting people's democratic systems. It's not trying to bring governments down. You know, it's engaged in trade. You know, it has contractual agreements with numerous foreign governments and foreign companies that 
that they participate in of their free will, right? You know, it's actually, there's an element of racist there, racism there when you talk about, okay, out of 50 countries in Africa, 40 have signed up to Chinese investment deals as part of the Belt and Road. Are you telling me that the governments of those 40 countries are just, you know, um, like useful idiots of the Chinese, you know, that, that they understand so little about the world. You know, they've experienced centuries of colonialism and imperialism. They've experienced the rape of Africa. They've experienced genocide. They've experienced slavery. They've experienced massacres. And yet the Chinese turn up offering the same thing as the Europeans and the Americans offered them. And they'll say, okay, yeah, sure, we'll go for it. You know, that's incredibly patronizing, actually. That's, that's I would say, despicably rude and Eurocentric and racist. Um, you know, China is a trading country. China's obviously got lots of capital, economically very successful, um, and it's exporting a lot of that capital, um, as well as importing capital and, and, and using foreign di direct investment at home. But that's not the definition of imperialism. The definition of imperialism has to include domination, and you simply can't find examples of that. Like, and to give another example, look at progressive Latin America, the, the so-called pink tide in Latin America, in Venezuela, in Cuba, in Nicaragua, in Bolivia, in Argentina, in Brazil, up until recently. Um, China was China was hugely important to to assisting and aiding and financing that. You know, Chavez. You know, Chavez is someone who knew a little something about imperialism. Chavez had a fantastic relationship with China. He visited Beijing six times during his presidency. China was um, providing a lot of the funds that were used for social programs in Venezuela that have changed life incomparably for the masses of Venezuelan people. You know, China came to Cuba's rescue. You know, Fidel Castro is another person who knew a little something about imperialism described China as the most important bulwark against imperialism in the world. So the charges simply don't add up. You know, it's, it's, it's actually part of new Cold War propaganda to, to denigrate China like that and to say, well, neither Washington nor Beijing, you know, we don't take sides between the US ruling class and the Chinese working, uh, ruling class. It's a cop-out of, you know, the most majestic proportions. I have one more question, actually, that I'd love for you to respond to, since we're kind of on a roll with this, because another common argument I'll hear is that China's a hyper-capitalist country. Like, if you think America's capitalist, China's like a thousand times more capitalist. And again, I'm bringing this up just because, you know, obviously we have a very progressive audience. Uh, and I think that these are common arguments that I see made in left and progressive circles in the West. And I'll, I, I want to add, you know, I was actually watching this uh, lecture by the great late uh, Egyptian French uh, Marxist economist Samir Amin mm. talking about this issue of China as what kind of uh, system, economic system does it have? And he stated, and I don't know if these numbers are still accurate because this was from a few years ago, but he stated something so that, that really caught my attention that China has something like 6% of the world's arable land, right? And it's managed to use 6% of the world's arable land, which is not a lot at all for a country as big as China to like feed its entire population 22% of the world to feed 22% of the world. Whereas a country like Brazil 
has like the opposite. It has like a way higher, I can't remember the exact number, but a way higher percentage of the world's arable land. And yet its population, a significant portion live in extreme poverty and, and hunger. And that he suggested is a result of a very hyper-capitalist system in Brazil, a developing country that's capitalist versus China, which is not um, in his interpretation. But I'd love to hear your, I just wanted to, to cite that, that number because I think it's a fascinating number, but I want to hear your response to that very common argument that China is not a socialist country. It's very capitalist. How do you respond to that? Right. Um, I mean, speaking of Samir, I mean, I remember reading that he, he describes China as a poor country where one doesn't see poor people. Mm. And he says, compare it with Brazil, which is a supposedly rich country where one only sees poor people. Um, mm -hmm. And that's making the point that, you know, China, you know, if you go to the, I mean, if you go to the big cities in China these days, if you go to Beijing, if you go to Shanghai, if you go to Shenzhen, if you go to Guangzhou, actually workers live there, the standard of living is very high. You know, it's, it compares pretty favorably with, with New York or with London. But, you know, if you go to the rural areas, of course, you will see relative poverty. But if you compare it with anywhere else in the developing world, I mean, my, my dad's Indian, lot, lots of my family are in India. I go, I've been to India many a times. And there's, there's no comparison whatsoever, because if you're poor in China, you still have land. You are not in debt to a landlord. You have access to clean water. You have access to education. You have a job. You have access to health care. Um, you know, you, you're, you're food secure and you're shelter secure, which you know, in, in most of the developing world, frankly, that makes you middle class, right? Um, so, I mean, as to whether China is capitalist or socialism, socialist or some, some combination of the two, in a sense, you know, we're talking about semantics, but I think Eric Lee puts it very well. He says, you know, China is a market economy and China is a, a, a country where there's lots of capitalists and there's lots of people with a lot of money and there is some level of private ownership of the means of production. However, capitalists aren't in charge. He says, I'm a capitalist. You know, he's a venture capitalist as, as, as well as being a, a political scientist. He said, I've got no power. Um, so, you know, you've got a capitalist class in China, but they exist at the grace of the government, at the grace of essentially the Communist Party of China. He said, you know, the big difference between politics in the US and politics in China in China, the Politburo tells the capitalists what to do. In the US, the capitalists, you know, the, the oligarchs tell the government what to do. You know, it's a completely different system. And, and at a political level, that's, in my view, that's what socialism means. And that's what capitalism means. Under capitalism, cap the needs of capital, the needs of profit come first, right? It's the capitalist class that's the ruling class. Now in China, the, the capitalist class have a say, they're involved, but by no means do they dominate political power. And therefore, you can't reasonably describe China as a capitalist country. Oh, Eugene, you may be muted. You may be muted because I do not hear you. Well, we know that, yeah, let's, let's, so while we figure out what's going on with Eugene's microphone or perhaps 
yeah, we still don't hear you. But um, testing, but testing. that said, well, yeah, now we is. can hear you. Okay, you I was just like saying that what Carlos was, was saying really... was so elementary, yeah. it seems obvious, but it's become so controversial. No, but people need to hear it. Yeah, people need I to mean, hear it. It's become controversial because people don't want to realize how they're affected, quite frankly, by a lot of the first world propaganda that's out here. But anyway, we could be here all day talking about all of that. Carlos, really appreciate you being willing to join us here. Definitely want to plug that you are running and facilitating the Invent the Future blog, which has a lot of great history about many of these socialist movements we sort of briefly mentioned here in, in on the African continent and other places, as well as the No Cold War campaign that you're the co-founder of. Thank you so much for being with us here on the Freedom Side again. Thank you, guys. Really enjoyed the chat.